Well, praise the Lord, Church of Omaha. I said, praise the Lord, Church of Omaha. He is great and greatly to be praised. Amen. I'd like to welcome everybody this morning to our first word here at the Church of Omaha. It is a blessing to be in the house of the Lord with you all. Amen. Amen. Uh, this morning I come to you with, with something that may, uh, isn't very difficult maybe to grasp, uh, for I believe that, that all have gone through it or are maybe currently going through it in some way, shape, or form. And you know, along with this, even though it's not difficult to grasp, uh, it's, it's still something that we can find difficult to endure. Uh, so to start off this morning, I want to turn your attention right away to my scripture, uh, or my text, the text this morning in Romans chapter 8. And let's stand for the reading of the word if you're able to. Romans chapter 8. I'll give you just a few moments to turn there. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 35. Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life, excuse me, neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as you're closing your Bibles, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this time during our first word where we can dive into your word and grasp these concepts, these things that you have given for us. I pray for every heart and mind here today, those watching online and those watching and listening later. Lord, that we would each take every thought captive and bring those thoughts to your obedience. We desire more of you in this place with each moment. Help me, Lord, to be nothing more and nothing less than a vessel for you and what you desire for your church today. In Jesus' name, and everybody say amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, this morning, to, to put a title of sorts to this, with the Lord's leading and guidance, I'm going to talk to you about suffering, and, and to bring it to a very personal level, I suffer. I suffer. As one goes through their lives, there is suffering. Not that anyone wishes to suffer, but suffering in some way, shape, or form is something that everyone endures, that everyone goes through. And as we just read in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Followed by this long list of points of suffering. This indicates that, yes, there will be suffering. And without getting too far ahead of myself, even though suffering comes, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. And I'm so thankful for this. That nothing I endure through here, that nothing I may suffer through here, can separate me from the love of Christ. His perfect love permeates through it all. Amen? So, suffering. Suffering is seen as a consequence of the fall in the Garden of Eden. 
And it will not be reversed until we enter into the presence of the Lord. Where we see Him face to face one day. From beginning to end, the biblical story is of godly men and women who learned to trust in God even when it hurt. Even when it didn't seem right. When we read through the 11th chapter of Hebrews or the Hall of Faith chapter, as some may come to reference it, we are reminded of some heroes of faith who suffered without relief in this world. And heroes of faith who suffered in the midst of miracles. Abel was murdered. Noah was ridiculed. Abraham's wife was kidnapped. Abraham was forsaken by Lot, his nephew. Abraham was a hundred years old before his promised son was born. Because the tension was so great between Ishmael and Isaac, Abraham had to send Ishmael and his mother away. And as I mentioned last week, God tested Abraham by asking him to offer his only son, Isaac. Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. One of the things we learn in Hebrews 11 is that even the kind of faith that results in miracles does not exempt us from suffering. It can be found as a common mindset for someone to put a premium or to put a high regard on being pain-free. Let me tell you what I mean. By a show of hands, how many of you like pain? How many of you like pain? If I told you that I love being pained by something that took place in my life a couple of weeks ago, I'd be a liar. If I told you that I enjoyed being ridiculed for not partaking in this or that, I'd be a liar. We don't like pain. It's not something we enjoy. We do not like problems we cannot quickly solve. Has anyone ever been in a situation that you thought should be solved quickly, but instead it took a long time? Or maybe longer than you anticipated it to take? The view of life has given birth to a multi-billion dollar industry of medicines, potions, and elixirs that advertise the promise to free us from pain. There are, some, there are even some self-help books out there that offer this snap-of-your-finger fix to life's problems. Just do this, and boom, it's fixed. But then reality hits. Now, what I'm not suggesting is that it's wrong to accept care when it's needed or to reject helpful advice when maybe seeking solutions to difficult circumstances. But but there's no biblical promise that we will ever, here on this earth, in this physical body, completely escape the consequences of brokenness, of the brokenness that entered the world with the rebellion of our ancestors Adam and Eve. Romans 5.12, Paul writes, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. See, this reference we read to death to sin refers to God's 
warning to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And shortly thereafter, we read of the rebellion and choice to eat of that forbidden tree. The death in view here is not merely a physical death, but spiritual death, which is separation from fellowship with God. And as Paul put it in Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in your trespasses and sins. And also to the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 13, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Adam's disobedience resulted in negative spiritual consequences for all, but it also caused physical decay leading to death. God has placed in the garden, had placed in the Garden of Eden the tree of life, which would have assured eternal life and presumably everlasting health. But as a consequence of sin, this was the way to this tree was barred. Although we find redemption through Christ's work on the cross, we still live in a fallen world with fallen people. This guarantees the dimension of suffering. We no longer live in Eden. And though we have the promise of healing in addition to our salvation, some healing will await the resurrection for all die. Looking at Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 27, points to this saying, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Paul writes to the Corinthians that the resurrection of the dead was sown in corruption, but raised in incorruption. It was sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. It was sown in weakness, but raised in power sown in the natural body, but raised in the spiritual body. And as he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53, for the corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. It is truly empowering to continue when knowing this promise will one day be fulfilled. It is empowering. Why? Because I have to keep pressing through. I have to keep pressing forward. I have to keep pushing. I need His strength to do it. It's not by my own strength. It's only by His. I need His promise to do it. His Word brings that encouragement to continue. His word brings that hope, that joy, that peace, that love to my life here, to my current situation, to any and every situation that I may be going through right now. It is our ever-present God who is always there, who is here right now. And because of this, I rejoice. Even though I suffer, I rejoice. I rejoice. The perspective found on suffering in our word is that it should be an occasion for rejoicing, not for questioning God or giving up hope. 
In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes, beginning with verse 3, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. There was a woman who once asked an apostolic pastor to pray that God would give her patience. Bishop, have you ever been approached with that question or that request? Well, this pastor began to pray something like this. Oh, God, I pray that you would give this woman tribulation. <laughs> Taken aback in shock, the woman kindly reminded her pastor that she wanted patience, not tribulation. The pastor informed her that patience was the result of tribulation. When we look at that word tribulation and, and search the Greek word and meaning, within its range of meaning is the idea of pressure. Perhaps today we could extend that notion to the common problem of stress. Our culture has many stress points, including relationships, job responsibilities, financial crises, health concerns, violence, and so forth. The media's constant bombardment of bad news enhances this problem. The recent media fast, Sister Nancy, was so timely for so many reasons. Getting away from the media, the mass media, the smaller media resources, turning those things off and turning our attention to God. In fact, I was in a meeting last night where, where some commented that even large companies are, are getting away from this social media because it has become such a toxic place, such a toxic environment. And while it may be indirect, it does not help anyone's stress. In what we just read, Paul writes that tribulation produces what? Patience. Patience is not produced by pressure or stress alone. To understand Paul's point, we must examine more of the context of Romans chapter 5, beginning at the start of the chapter. He writes, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Are you ready? Pressure will produce patience when we respond to pressure with faith in God. Peace with God results in inner peace, which enables a person to trust God regardless of the circumstances of life. This is genuine faith. When we respond to the stresses of life with faith in God, the result is patience. The writer of Hebrews wrote in chapter 10 concerning patience, beginning with verse 35, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Patience will lead you to the promise. Some of you in here know that I like to garden something that I like to do mostly every summer, unless I get behind in one way, shape, or form. 
But, but gardening is one of those things that has a great life application to patience. Why? Because on average, a tomato plant has a, has a waiting period, if you will, uh, of about 60 to 80 days before any fruit will be produced. Now, do you think I just stand out there beside the plant watching it 24 hours a day? If I did that, you could talk to my wife. She would not be a very happy person. I don't think anybody would be. But, now, but, but do I visit that garden every day to see if there's any progress? Yeah, of course I do. I've got to, I've got to tend to it. I've got to take care of it. Are, are there days where I can't see any growth? Yeah. Does, does this mean that the plant's not growing? No. Does it mean that there's not going to be a fruit in a couple months from now? Uh, I don't know the answer to that right now because it's still early, but, but I need to be patient to find out. Stressing about the plant will not make it grow any faster, right? From Hebrews 10, what I just read, saying, after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. You see, the promise I hold on to while gardening and taking care of these plants is that there is going to be fruit. But in order to trust that that fruit will produce, I've got to do certain things. I've got to tend to it. I've got to water it. I've got to keep the weeds away. I've got to cover it on those cold days. I've got to do all these things. And it's not until after I have done these things that I might receive the promise. Or that I receive that which has been so long awaited. How much more is that true in walking in the will of God? How much more is that true in the sufferings on this earth and how they compare to the eternal life with Christ? How much more? I choose to be like the brothers that James wrote to in James chapter 1, verse 2, and count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And just as Paul wrote, so James also emphasized the value of suffering in relationship to patience. The word translated temptations is different from the word tribulations that we read in Romans 5. This word indicates an attempt to learn the nature of character of something uh, or something by submitting such to thorough and extensive testing. God tests not because he needs to learn about us, but because we need to learn about us. Trials of faith show our hidden weaknesses, which gives us opportunities for unexpected growth as we respond to the tests in faith. Without patience that results from responding to temptations in faith, we cannot be perfect entire, we cannot be wanting nothing. There will still be dimensions of our spiritual lives that are deficient. And to kind of switch gears a little bit as we continue this morning, I, I felt led to bring about one man from the Bible whom Pastor Jeremy did minister on a couple weeks ago who can be compared to a couple of other faith heroes. Turn with me to the book of Ezekiel chapter 14. Verse 14, I'm going to read just three verses there, beginning with verse 14. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord. 
Verse 16, though these three men were in it as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters, they only shall be delivered, but the land shall be desolate. And finally, verse 20, though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter, they shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. Job's test was so remarkable That even those who do not know much about the Bible are familiar with the patience of Job. Job never knew the reason for his suffering. His response to suffering places him in the same group, the same category, if you will, as these other two heroes, Noah and Daniel. Why? Why is Job compared to Noah and Daniel here? The most obvious reason we can find in Scripture is that none of these three men suffered because they had done something wrong. Let me go to the Word and I'll show you. Genesis chapter 6 regarding Noah, beginning with verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. Concerning Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, verse 21, then, Dan- then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God hath sent his angel and hath shut the lions' mouths, that they have not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. And finally, Job chapter 1, verse 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. In verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is no one like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Noah was just and perfect. Daniel was innocent in God's eyes. Job was perfect, an upright man who feared God and avoided or escheweth evil. When you think of escheweth, you think of just shooing it away. He shooed away the evil. This does not mean that any of these men were sinless. Noah was discovered drunk by his son. Daniel acknowledged his sin and confessed it to God. God rebuked Job for his words, leading to Job's confession. But when James wanted to single out one man from among the prophets as an example of patience, Job was that man. Turning forward again to the book of James, he writes in chapter 5, beginning with verse 10, Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender Mercy. Job is a model of genuine faith. His trusting God was such that even after losing massive wealth, losing his ten children, losing the support and encouragement of his wife, losing his health, he uttered the words, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. It was as if Satan was convinced that people serve God only for the benefits they receive. But after two failed attempts to prove his not-so-good theory, Satan never showed up again in the book of Job. 
The context of this encounter between Satan and, and the Lord indicates God accepted Satan's challenge in order to prove that a person of genuine faith will trust God regardless of life's circumstances. We should also keep in mind that even though God rewarded Job's faith by blessing him beyond his loss, nothing in the blessing could erase the pain of losing his ten children. Nothing could erase that pain. In addition to the possibility that some suffering may be God's test of our faith, there are other sources of suffering. These types of suffering are another thing that, that may be difficult to grasp. Maybe not difficult to grasp, but maybe something you not necessarily want to believe, but the Word says it. One of the causes of suffering is rejection by those who do not share the faith. Jesus explained this, explained that this could happen in Matthew chapter 10, beginning with verse 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth, he says. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall, they, shall be they of his own household. Now this is not what Jesus wanted. It frequently states in the, in the letters that we read, Ephesians, Thessalonians, Hebrews, James, and Peter, that believers should live in peace with one another. The point is that where there are those who reject Jesus, their rejection of Him sets them at odds with those who believe in Him. Jesus Himself experienced the rejection of His own brothers who did not believe He was the Messiah. Look at John chapter 7, verse 3. His brethren therefore said to him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. For thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Excuse me, if thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Another cause of suffering may arise from disappointment with those you love. Betrayal results in a devastating sense of loss. In Matthew 24, Jesus warned his disciples of the distressing events that would characterize the future, beginning with verse 9. Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. Throughout history, these behaviors have contributed to physical mental, and emotional suffering. Many believers today could identify with Paul in his sense of loneliness and emotional woundedness. Remember what he wrote concerning these struggles? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to, to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. In verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil, the reward him, the Lord reward him according to his works, of whom be thou ware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. In addition to these sufferings just noted, suffering may also result from weakness or, or sickness that God does not heal, does not choose to heal. In these cases, we seek medical help to, to relieve the suffering, while at the same time valuing the spiritual benefits that can result from pain. 
As many of you know, I can relate to this. My healing hasn't happened yet. But is my faith any less because I take care of my body right now? I understand that there may be different views on medicine and things like that, even in this room. But don't be at variance with one another because of it. And I want to speak to the person that asked God why. Any of you ever asked God why? I have. Why haven't you healed me yet, Lord? Not to discourage you from asking such a question, but to prepare yourself for an answer. I don't know why I haven't been healed yet, but God does. In the meantime, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to give him glory. I'm going to thank him for that healing. <laughs> Even if it doesn't happen in this life. When we read of Timothy being sick, we find that it may be something of digestive nature. Do you think Paul prayed for his healing? Absolutely. But he was not healed. Paul recommended a remedy rather than telling Timothy he must suffer without relief. While Timothy's infirmity seems to be simply connected to a physical problem, Paul, on the other hand, himself, he suffered an infirmity connected with his spiritual well-being. It was something that wouldn't yield to prayer, and apparently no physical relief was available. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, beginning with verse 7. And lest I should be exalted, Paul writes, above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me. Not buffet, to buffet me. Lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. In reading the revelations that Paul received, it put him in danger of pride. Pride is such a debilitating sin that, that the Lord allowed Satan to buffet Paul in order to ward off the arrogance that can result from a wrong response to spiritual experience. While there may be some speculation to the nature of Paul's thorn in the flesh, it was a messenger from Satan. But in turn, it was used by God to develop in Paul the character that would prevent his fall into pride and be Paul's greatest strength. It was a commitment to glory in his weakness, allowing, God to strength, allowing God's strength to be made perfect in him. We should not only embrace weakness, we should, excuse me, let, me, let me rephrase that. We should not only embrace weakness only if it is absolutely necessary. We shouldn't only embrace it when it's only necessary. 
Here's the thing about weakness. Weakness is where we can always find spiritual strength. In our weakness, He is strong. The greater our weakness, the greater the opportunity for the power of Christ to rest upon us. With that, the more we recognize our inabilities, the more we experience Christ's abilities. There's not a lot I can do without Him. In fact, I wouldn't be here today without Him. So therefore, I choose to rely on Him at all times now. Even when I'm weak. Weakness happens a lot. There are times when I'm weak in my flesh. There are times when I'm weak in my mind and my body and different things like that. But in that time of weakness, His strength is made perfect. His strength is is made perfect in me. His strength fills me up. His strength allows me to keep going, to keep pressing. But, But only if I rely on His strength. It's not me relying on this thing over here or that thing over here. You know, I'm not gonna go, pardon my expression, but I'm not gonna go read a self help book if I need God's help. I'm going to go to the Word. I'm going to go to His Word, which is true. His Word, which has promises that that will come to pass, that, that will be fulfilled, of which I can hold on to forever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This This thorn in the flesh, let me talk about that thorn in the flesh. It may not be a physical thing. You may not have a thorn in the flesh, something that always probes you and pricks you and things like that. But what is it for you? What is that thorn in the flesh for you? Is is there something that, that constantly reminds you of how much you need God? And if so, are you thanking Him for it? Are you rejoicing in that pain? Is there something that reminds you how dependent you must truly be on Him? It may be something that's nagging, but thank God for those reminders. When we choose to embrace those and lean on God, fully trusting in Him, our mindset on suffering begins to shift. And I know this may sound a bit odd, but we begin to embrace suffering as good. We begin to be like Paul and embrace that. Say, hey, I'm going to give him glory anyway. We begin to embrace it and we, uh, we begin to welcome that suffering. No, this is not just some play on words, but, but allow me to explain. People of great faith in the Bible were people who knew how to rejoice in suffering. They learned how to embrace suffering as what we could view as a friend. Something that stuck with them. David wrote in Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. When we respond, excuse me, when responded to in faith, there is something about an experience to suffering that enables a person to reassess what is important to life and what needs to be reoriented 
to eternal value. Since we are human, we will suffer. But in our humanity, the power of God is at work to save us from despair. Here's how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning with verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power of God, excuse power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. <laughs> Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that, this, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So death worketh in us, but life in you. At first it may seem that trouble, perplexity, persecution, and the ongoing experience of death's nearness, knocking at the door, it would surely result in distress, despair, and a sense of forsakenness and destruction. You may feel alone. You may feel like everything's against you. This was not the case for Paul. He discerned the excellency of the power of God in the midst of human weakness. Later in that context, Paul explained how this worked by saying, the outward man perishes, but the inward man is renewed day by day. You know, I'm reminded of, of the apostles who were beaten, who were kicked out of the town, but yet they rejoiced in that suffering. When, when you read that, you're thinking, how can they rejoice? Well, they had eternity in mind, brothers and sisters. They had eternity in mind that this world is not my home, that I'm merely just a stranger passing through. So yes, these things are going to happen. They may happen to me. They may happen to you. But guess what? I've got a greater home that's coming. Hallelujah. Greater things are to come. This affliction is right now, maybe happening right now to you, but it works toward the eternal glory. We see things that are right now, but the things that aren't seen, that we haven't seen yet, they're eternal. <laughs> For Paul, suffering was a comfort because of its eternal value. It produced in him something much more significant than the momentary pain which in comparison seemed light. We too can embrace suffering because God can use it to develop character in those who respond to suffering by trusting Him. This is true even when suffering is a result of chastening. God, you know, we... We suffer, but, but let's look at the chastening aspect of that. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. We can embrace suffering because it helps us develop empathy for others who are going through the same experience we have endured. Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Beginning with verse 3, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. 
by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted to God. We can embrace suffering because it lessens our tendency to pass judgment on others. It helps us to avoid the temptation to say, I told you so, or if I were you, James 2.13 says, For he shall have judgment without mercy, that, he, that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth, rejoiceth against judgment. With that, we can embrace suffering because it drives us to seek help from others rather than keep it all inside and attempt to handle it ourselves. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall... The one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Anyone here ever try to handle something on your own and later find out that you should have shared that with somebody else and let them help you? Remember, it's not a sign of weakness to ask for help. It's not a sign of weakness to ask for assistance. Sometimes that's a tough pill to swallow. Just ask the guy that's preaching right now. Anyways, we can embrace suffering because it produces humility when we respond in faith. As we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, He will do what? He will lift you up. You see, God is honored. He's honored when we respond to suffering by glorying in weakness, rejoicing in tribulation, and counting it all joy when we experience various trials. Regardless of our reason for suffering, whether it is sickness or disease, disappointment with those we love, persecution for our faith, or God's test of our faith, although it may be challenging, it is always the right decision to trust in God during times of suffering. This life, yours and mine, is not about joy versus sorrow. It's about joy in sorrow. It's not about peace versus turmoil. It's about peace in the midst of turmoil. It's not about contentment versus need. It's about contentment in the midst of need. In Philippians 4, we find an example that we can always reference as we need to, as often as we needed to remind us. Verse 11, not that I speak in respect of one, for I have learned that in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Would it be a struggle for you today to say, I am content? To do more than just say, but to actually be content as well? If so, then I have to ask, what's your reason to not be content? What's your reason to not find that contentment, even in your need? I know there have been some who have experience not knowing where their next meal would come from. I know there have been some who have had both times of plenty and times of need. I know there are those who have desired a healing and not received that yet. 
I know there are some who have had difficulties in relationships with loved ones. But in all these times, are you finding that contentment necessary? Are you finding that contentment with God? Are you following, are you allowing the Lord to strengthen you at all times in doing all things? You may be able to do all things, but what about doing all things through Christ which strengthens you? There's something more important than, a, than living a pain-free life. There's something more true than a pain-free life. What is it? It's being conformed to the character of Christ and embracing eternity's values. Although we may acknowledge that suffering can be disciplinary in the sense of leading us to reorient the concepts that we have about spirituality, we tend to want to learn our lessons quickly, hurry to put that pain behind us, and want to get on with life. But there's always another lesson to learn. And the pain will not go away until sin's final sting, death, is conquered in the resurrection. And oh, what a day that will be. What a glorious day that will be to see Jesus face to face where death is swallowed up in victory, where death no longer has any sting, where pain no longer has a place. What a day that will be when He returns for His church. Woo! I can't wait for that day. Hallelujah. When I think about that day, until it comes, I know that suffering will continue until then. When I think about that day, no matter the pain, I know better days are ahead. In his book titled The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. For Paul, to suffer was a calling. When the Lord sent Ananias to the newly converted Saul, he said he would show him great things he must suffer for the Lord's namesake. There is at least some sense in which all believers may be called to suffer. Peter put it like this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer in well-doing than for evil-doing. In our opening text, Paul's words indicate that believers can expect to face tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. There are, these are the consequences of, of living as people of faith in a sinful world. While not everyone may experience the same suffering, and you may think it's a far-fetched for you to even experience any of it, there are those in many places today where these experience are, experiences are the norm. Is that stopping those people? Is that stopping you? Whatever we face, we know painful circumstances cannot separate us from God's love. No amount of suffering should be taken to mean that God does not love us. It's, his love permeates through the suffering. 
providing that greater strength, that courage, that power, that push to continue. As we come to a close here in our first word, I would that you'd consider your suffering as that which will one day reap those eternal benefits. And trust me when I say, I know it's hard to fathom that right now, but here's the word. You can trust in His word. Every word that He speaks will come to pass. Every struggle that you face will come to an end. Every pain that you endure will come to pass. You may be suffering now, but hold on to Jesus. Embrace Him. Embrace His hope that He gives. Oh, hallelujah. Stand with me if you're able to. And I want us to close out this time in prayer in Jesus' name. God, we thank You for being the very author and the finisher of our faith. I thank You, Lord, that we can boldly put our trust and our hope in You. I thank You for creating us in Your image, oh God. Lord, I thank You for the suffering that I must endure, which draws me closer to You. Oh, Lord, I thank you for being closer than a brother, always being attentive to our needs, always hearing every prayer. Oh, Lord, I thank you for a courage that's being built up in my brothers and sisters around me, that this life is not the end, and that we trust in your word and that we follow your word. Oh, I pray right now for those who may be currently suffering, whatever that suffering may look like for them. I pray that they would seek you with the strength that only you can provide, that they would rejoice in you through the tribulation, through the temptation, through the trial that they may be facing. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your promises that you keep and we rejoice in them and we rejoice in our suffering. In Jesus' name, and everybody shout amen and clap your hands to the Lord all over this place. Hallelujah. You are great and greatly to be praised, oh God. Hallelujah. We thank you, oh Lord. We thank you for your word. God bless you all. We will see you here back in just about 10 minutes for our worship service. In Jesus' name.